I have been encouraged before to maybe write my messages for Easter in the dead of summer or winter. And then, but I, I, I thought if I did that, I probably still wouldn't be pleased as Easter came. And I looked at it, oh no, this, this won't do. So, I, I had intentions of continuing this morning what our church had been in for a sermon series in Acts, because there is a reference to the resurrection of Christ in Acts 25, but just one verse out of the entire chapter. I thought it was still relatable, but as I sat down yesterday, I just wasn't pleased, even though I'd been working on it most of the week. (laughs) So through prayer, I felt the Lord lead me to yet another passage that also has a small, albeit present reference to the resurrection. But here's what I felt the Lord saying through this passage and why I felt like the Lord wanted me to share. It's easy to come to this holy day of Easter shrouded in tradition and routine and ritual, but I feel the Lord wants us to hear urgency instead of routine and ritual. It would be more comfortable to go through the plans and the schedules for me, sunrise service, breakfast, potluck, church, Easter eggs. But I felt the Lord spoke to me out of this passage to say, wait a minute, there's an interruption. It's a, it's a knocking on the door from the Lord Jesus, the real Lord Jesus who says, I am he whom you are celebrating the resurrection. I am that Jesus. And here's what I say. So that's that's kind of the heart I felt. I do ask you to stand for the reading of the word of the Lord if you're able to. We're in Luke uh, 13, 22 through 35. <clears throat> we read, He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord... Will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer to you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence. And you taught in our streets, but he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdoms of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today, and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today, and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. 
Father, um, you lead me to a passage that it's easy to dismiss and say, oh, it's kind of scary stuff to preach on Easter Sunday. But you lead us here for a reason. Help us to not be afraid of you. Help us instead to hear your urgency and to wonder, why does he say the things he says? But then also to trust you in your reasons and your purposes. Help us to allow discipline and hard things to do the right things in our heart. Help us not have hard and cold hearts, but to have receiving warm hearts to you and your word and your ways. Help us to be yielded and surrender to you. Father, we thank you again that you would die for our sins and rise again. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this place. We pray that you would be the one speaking and not I. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> this Easter morning, as we focus in on who this resurrected Christ is, I want us to consider four things about him. The urgency, the audacity, the accomplishment, and the compassion. Urgency, audacity, accomplishment, and compassion. You know, many good movies and stories and such have been made about the Gospels. And and because we love the fact that Christ is a friend, He says God is our Father, we, we love the warmth, the patience, the compassion, which again we will talk about, of Him. But in in focusing on the tenderness of who Christ is, I wonder if we lose sight of the urgency of Christ. First, Luke tells us, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Luke, uh, in chapter 13, um, by this time in Luke, I should say, the story is over a hump of sorts in the book of Luke. In Luke chapter 9, there is this decisive moment where Luke writes that Christ set his face towards Jerusalem. As in, he knows he has a task to perform there, and it's no doubt a reference to his passion, his facing the cross and dying for our sins. And I had to look, I I was reminded of this lately. Every time I say passion, I think a lot of us have the American, oh, passionate. No, passion means suffering in Latin. So so that's what the passion of Christ is, is the suffering of Christ. And so that was in Luke 9. And in this verse, back here in Luke 13, he is ministering and teaching, but he still ultimately has his face, mind, and gaze set on Jerusalem. That's where he's headed. That's what he's going to accomplish. And we read, someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved... Be few. That's, that's a loaded question. We first must know that this question does not at all come from a 21st century Christian. It comes likely from a 1st century Jew who without a doubt likely believed that saved, that is someone spared hellfire and, and the afterlife and granted a resurrection to paradise or to heaven, they already believed would, would, would fall under a small category to us. Jews believed that it would only fall to righteous Jewish Israelites. No one else. <laughs> I don't think, I don't know if anybody in here is Hebrew. 
That's it. <laughs> so in many ways, Christ will broaden the category. We'll talk about that in a minute. But perhaps this Israelite, this Jewish man asking Christ this question, had been hearing Jesus out and out challenge long-held traditions. Jesus would confront the Pharisees often, who were thought to be the holiest, the best examples of in his day. And perhaps this Jewish Israelite was saying, well, if not even the Pharisees are holy, who does that leave? Surely not run-of-the-mill Jews who don't even make it to the Sabbath gatherings. Lord, will those who are saved be few? Like, are you saving the bugs? Like, In a similar story, over in Matthew 7, Jesus says there, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it, enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Who will be saved? Will it be few? That sounds like what Jesus just said. And in these moments, I believe we can react in one or two ways. The first way is to do what we can to minimize, dismiss, explain around, get angry, get huffy, get upset at the messenger and say, hey, don't wreck Jesus for me. And pretend like lines like this aren't in the Bible. But I'm one of those people who, well, they are. I guess I should do something about that. What do we do with them? The second thing we can do, and what I would encourage, is submit, submit, yield, let God be God, let Christ be urgent, let Him say what He says, and submit to what He says. That's what you do when you profess Him as Lord. You say, Lord, you say things that I might even take offense to. But I let that go, because if the truth offends me, and Christ only speaks the truth, then it is I who must change, not you. I who must yield and listen and receive. So what does Christ say here after the question is posed? Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive. Strive. That means effort. Strive. It means emotional, physical, mental investment. Strive. Earnestness. Seriousness. This is for real. This is not, I have my secular life, and then I have my religious life. This is not, I have my Jesus and church time, and then I have my time. No, strive to enter through the narrow door. Narrow. Hard to get through. And if the door is narrow, it's not that God is saying, I've made it very narrow because I'm a mean, nasty God. No, rather we make it narrow because we have wandering eyes. Suddenly the target gets smaller when we're so lured and attracted by so many things. How many of you have a favorite something? Or maybe you had a favorite thing, something before multiple options came out, right? You ever go to a restaurant a lot? At the Mexican restaurant, I usually get a beef quesadilla. Christy laughs at me. Like, why are you even looking at the menu, idiot? (laughs) The menu's so big. And then the people I'm with, they spend 30 minutes trying to decide 
what am I doing? I know I like beef quesadillas, so maybe I'm self-consciously limiting myself, but I, I do it because I like my choice. It tastes good. And I know I like my choice. And then I won't spend, you know, 15 or 20, I don't know, it's been a while, maybe 20 bucks by now on something that I'm not sure I'll like. I'll just spend it on something I know I like, works good. I believe Christ is saying, know, trust, and believe that I am good, that I am worth it. Christ, God says through Isaiah 55, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. This is the reality. There is a whole world out there of McDonald's and Arby's and junk food and soda and frozen pizza and TV dinners. And they all got good flavors and maybe they seem good in their time. And oh, that sounds good. But we forget the elegant, wholesome invitation of a well-spread table with family and friends around the table. It gets... It gets crowded out. We forget the soul satisfaction that comes from Christ. And Christ, like God, is asking, why do you spend money for that which is not even bread? Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Now, while I have my beef quesadilla, I was always very picky on which movie to watch. Back in the era of when we all rode dinosaurs and we thought the world was flat, there was a video store in Kamei and I remember as a teenager or a young adult, I would go to the video store and I would literally spend easily a half hour, sometimes an hour, looking through shelves and shelves and shelves of videos. Sometimes I'd walk home with nothing. Nothing sounded good in the end and I wasted an hour, which meant the evening was closer to drawing to an end. Maybe I should have stayed home and read my Bible. I would have done more for my soul. But we're so easily fooled, we're so easily duped that given a bag of popcorn in a movie or an audience with the creator of the universe and the lover of our soul, I'll take the movie and popcorn. So we should strive, really, to not be stupid. Strive to enter through the narrow door when there will be so many other voices choosing everything else but the narrow door and telling themselves and you how unkind, ill, rotten, dumb, old, and backwards that narrow door you want to enter is. It's if, if it's just not more inclusive. It's just too narrow. Just stick with them and their cancer-causing sugary ice cream instead of the bread of heaven and the living water. Christ says, For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. It's urgent. Christ is urgent. This is a decision. It's not a game. It's do you want complete, total, real satisfaction? Life in me, says Christ. Or do you not want life in me because a few things on earth sounded good, felt better in the moment, and you were convinced by some person with a three-pound fallen brain and watched a few YouTube videos and got convinced Christianity wasn't real? So you stake your bets on that guy. No, it's hard, but nevertheless, strive to enter through the narrow door. 
But Christ's urgency doesn't stop here. Instead, Christ has some audacity. That's our next point. Verses 25 through 30. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, we'll talk about that, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Now let's first go back to this culturally. As I said, the man asking Christ was a first century Israelite Jew, not a 21st century Western Christian. So while you or I might be offended or miffed that Christ isn't being very broad or inclusive with how he offers salvation, I don't know why critics sound like that, why he offers salvation, the Jew was just grossly offended in this passage. He was. See, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And we were told at the beginning that he's going through towns and villages teaching. He's headed toward the Jewish capital, Jerusalem. But Jesus is saying here a few things. First, there will be a time when the master of the house rises to shut the door. Now, I can hijack this sermon and we could speculate, contemplate. Is this time limit up on your last breath when the world ends? Is there a time for people to accept a time when they're still living but they can't? I don't know. What I do know is that now would be a great time to respond positively, supposing that the proverbial door is open. But then there is a further threat, a further audacious claim that some are knocking on the door of the kingdom of God, claiming knowledge and familiarity with the owner of the house. We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. For the Jewish cultural context, they almost believed that by virtue of being Jewish, they would be saved. It's as if the Messiah was one in the Jewish faith and people that, whether you like it or not, want it or not, if you're Jewish, the Messiah is going to deliver you. You will be good to go. It's something that both Jesus and his predecessor in ministry, his forerunner, John the Baptist, preached against all the time. John the Baptist said in his ministry, so the same author Luke would record for us, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. That's that's We're Jewish. (laughs) For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, does not bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown in the fire. So Jews, who would be astounded that in trying to enter the kingdom, they would be denied by their own Jewish God. But we're Jews, we're sons of Abraham. We ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. As if salvation would just be absorbed by osmosis. But as John the Baptist says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. As Jesus says, strive through the narrow door. Not just walk freely through the church door 
but strive through the narrow door of life with him. Are you in Christ real? Is it whole? Is it not just made it to church, check the mark? Not just supporting the right politics, policies, boycotting the right abominable societal sins. But is there something real between you and God? Are you and He friends to use an apt question in this church? But to make sure the poor Jewish man who asked this question on this day gets the picture, Jesus uses a few pictures. And if I can paraphrase, He says, some Jews are going to be so astounded to see, yep, right God, right house, there's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But meanwhile, other Jews who are, well, Jewish, are being tossed into outer darkness. Gnashing of teeth. Common picture of hell or punishment. While, and here's what we might miss if we don't know the whole north-south, east-west thing. That's a picture of Gentiles. So Jews are are, are ending up in hell while Gentiles, a fancy word for non-Jews, are coming to the table of Yahweh, Israel's God, because they've striven to enter through the narrow door. They've made it a real thing, a heart thing, a faith thing, a repentance thing. While many Jews who had relied upon their ethnicity, well, of course we're getting in. If the Jewish Messiah holds the keys, he's one of us. There's a lot of upside-down paradoxes in our faith. Starting with Christ. He's fully God, but He's also fully man. He's the Jewish Messiah who saved the world. He's the most powerful man in the world who lived as a humble peasant. But our Bible tells us that sometimes bad things happen to good people while good things happen to bad people. Or our Bible tells us that we can see today what we can see today. Sometimes good will be called evil and evil will be called good. Well, one of the paradoxes our faith has been building in this passage, and it's why some of us have been squirming, this idea of strive to enter the kingdom of God, bear fruit, fruit, repent. Uh, This means effort. This means work. It inspires fear or urgency, and sometimes it may cause people to question, wow, gee, am I saved? Will I be one of those people saying, I thought you and I were good. (laughs) Weren't we on speaking terms? But it's as if Luke is throwing into the narrative a reminder of where the biggest burden of our salvation lays after these no doubt true, poignant, confrontational words are spoken and something we should grapple with still. But we still read in verses 31 and 32, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Jesus, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I finish my work or course. First of all, I 100% believe that this historically happened. I say that because I'm about to interpret this a bit prophetically and symbolically, but that doesn't mean, again, I don't think it happened physically and factually. Let us consider again the fact that Christ has no doubt if not offended, at least give give reason for strong anger in his Jewish hearers. Some Gentiles will be saved in the kingdom, while some Jews who would like to claim their heritage as reason enough to enjoy the kingdom will be in hell. That can be a little offensive. And it is, in fact, a major factor in many of the Jews of the time denying and rejecting Christ. 
So Pharisees came, and in most cases it seems like the Pharisees were the enemies of Christ already. If if they aren't named, the ones who are named seem to be Jesus' friends, like Nicodemus or eventually Paul. We're not told if these Pharisees agreed or disagreed with Christ, but we are told that Herod, the king of the Jews, which was a client king, a king who was in Rome's back pocket, controlled by Rome, we're, we're told he wanted to kill Jesus. It's not surprising, because Herod's dad was Herod the Great, who wiped out all the male children of Bethlehem looking for baby Jesus. This Herod, Antipas, is the one who executed John the Baptist, beheaded him. So it could be that the Pharisees here were also opponents, but they were just stating whatever they could to get Jesus to shut up. Get away from here. Very friendly introduction to what they're saying. And then great news. Herod wants to kill you. Now, Christians never hear this today, I know. You're rather mean-spirited, narrow-minded with your talk. Just leave and nobody likes you. In fact, some would, would like to kill you if they have their way. And then Jesus has this answer. It's the reference to the resurrection, and it's the paradox that I find this passage building to. First he says, go and tell that fox, which is a common Jewish symbol for a destructive pest in the vineyard. Israel is often referred to as a vineyard. Then Christ gives a brief summary of his ministry. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my work. First, Christ is answering this concern. Go and tell that fox, I'm only here for a certain amount of time. So he can just calm down. Christ came for a purpose. He's here today, gone tomorrow. But the thing he says next is an answer to the urgency, to the trepidation, to the fear that arises out of striving, the the striving that he urges people to participate in to be saved. Christ says he finishes the work. His work on the third day is a reference to the resurrection. Luke has recorded him saying throughout the work. In Luke chapter 9, Christ prophesied to his disciples saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And so I don't know, but I wonder... While Jesus' opponents simply heard, he's here today and gone tomorrow, I wonder if his disciples who had heard that prophecy, the only hearers up to this point of that prophecy, I wonder if they heard Jesus say his finishing his work is the same third day that he rises. Does that make sense? Of course, the, the, the reminding should word us to, wait a minute, the word should remind us to, it is finished. My work is finished. John 19.30. In fact, a more literal wording of this verse in Luke 13.32 would say, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish. That's, that's really all that's there. What Christ is saying is that His work is our salvation. Now, the word work as one of the translations puts it, is not, in fact, in the original language. It is more like, on the third day I finish. Nevertheless, whenever this translation used the word work, it reminded me of something that Jesus says 
back in John 6. And it goes back to the idea of striving. It goes back to the idea of Isaiah 55 and receiving food that is satisfying versus food that isn't. Jesus taps into the Isaiah 55 symbolism in John 6, and he says to those who are listening to him there, do not work for the food that perishes. Right? Don't work for the junk food, the stuff that doesn't satisfy. The stuff that sounds good, feels good, but wastes quickly. Instead, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. Then they said to Him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God. Here's where all the striving is. That you believe in Him in whom He has sent. And Christ was sent. And He was sent to work on our behalf. To say at the cross, it is finished. Our salvation was finished. That that was Christ's accomplishment. God created a world and we sinned. We broke covenant. See, God said He wanted a world with perfect communion with Him, but perfect communion was broken when humanity doubted Him, disobeyed Him, and questioned His goodness. He's withholding something from me, right? Why is that door so narrow? Mused by our first parents who lived in a perfect world with literally only one rule. Don't eat the fruit on that one tree. You know, I always say, I always ate three cookies because I was told to eat two. They focused on the one rule. God so narrow-minded to forbid us this one fruit. When everything else is ours. I hope you note the sarcasm. But when man broke covenant, God's the one who closes the distance. It's not that man must work his way to God, but God works on behalf of man back to God. And when a perfect God whose righteousness is perfect is sinned against, perfect justice demands life. And God loves us so much that He sends His Son to pay that life. Luke records Jesus as He gives the Last Supper, stating when He broke the bread, this is My body which is given for you. When He dies, it's for us. That's His work. That's what He accomplishes. His life for our sins. Our debt, but He pays the price. Our punishment, but He suffers for it. That's what Christ does. And more than that, He's our Creator, and He brings us back to our original intent. Our original intent was always to thrive in perfect communion with Him. So the gospel is not just sins forgiven, but its original intent restored. So strive to enter that. Strive to enter that. It's faith in Him and what He does. That's the work of God, He said in John 6, that receives this. As the passage winds down, let us consider where we've been to thread the needle of how it ends. We've seen the urgency of Christ. When pressed... Who will be saved? He urges, strive to enter through the narrow door. It's so hard. There's so many distractions. 
We've seen the audacity of Christ that He freely confesses, being around me, among me, within my people isn't enough. It's about true hearts of repentance. Faith in me, belief in me that moves one to action. We see the accomplishment of Christ. He's the one who dies for us. He's the one who rises again for us. But before we think that Christ takes some sort of joy in the fact that people are still desiring junk food over his well-spread table, we actually see the compassion of Christ. Christ, the Jewish Messiah, came to Israel and was rejected by his own people. We read in verses 33 through 35, he's still answering these Pharisees and those around him who had mentioned about Herod wanting to kill him. He says, nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All those prophets in your Bibles, all those ayahs, (laughs) Jeremiah, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, all those other prophets too, Isaiah, Ezekiel, lots of them were rejected in their day. They're in the Bible, so I think sometimes, at least I think, oh, they were flawless and they were uncontested. They're authors of the Bible. But no, the little accounts we do have of them biographically tells us they were just as ignored, controversial, ill-received as Jesus was. Persecuted. And Jesus, the prophet of prophets, fulfillment of the Old Testament, is coming to the Jerusalem and the people will act as they always have. Jesus is saying, I've always wanted to keep you as my own. God, Yahweh, has said from the beginning of Israel's creation, He wanted to be their God. He wanted them as their people. How would I have gathered you as a hen? Gathers her brood under His wings. God's heart is parental love and protection. But it was Jerusalem that was unwilling. And then He makes a reference to the Passion Week. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Which is what the crowds welcome Christ with on Palm Sunday. Those are the words they speak. The beginning of the week where Jesus dies in Jerusalem for our sins. So who are you? Are you receptive? Or are you put off by the urgency and the audacity of Christ? That he would actually state, yeah, some people are rejected. Because they claim to know me on their lips, but they reject me in their hearts. And I'm not blind or stupid, I see that. But have you taken comfort in what he accomplished? On that cross and and out of that empty tomb that it was for you and for me and all of our work, the work of God needs is just heartfelt, sincere faith. Belief with action to back it up. A true heart that desires Him. Actions that show it. Lives that prove we believe. Because do you hear the compassion of God? Even the fiery Old Testament prophet of Ezekiel says of God that He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they might turn and live. That's His compassion for you today. Let's pray.
Father, sometimes it's easy to get up on Easter Sunday and do all the things we like to do because that's what we do on Easter Sunday. But I feel like you pull us over and say, wait a minute, this is something with a heart behind it. It's not a bunch of empty rituals and celebrations, but there's some truth we got to grapple with. Father, your door that you open for us is narrow. Did you build it that way? Or is it because all the other things in our world seems to crowd you out a lot? And we get so easily deceived that even in a garden where everything is available to us, the one rule you put up is the thing we want to do, the thing we want to break. So, Father, I pray that today, if people are astounded by your urgency and your audacity, that they would rely all the more on what you accomplish and trust all the more in how compassionate you are. Father, if there's anyone here today who's not saved, I pray that they would say these words. Father in heaven, I have sinned against you. I cannot save myself. I trust in your son Jesus who died for my sins. I trust in you who will deliver me in the resurrection. I trust in the Holy Spirit that rose Jesus from the grave and lives in me. Help me in my unbelief and help me to do what you want me to do, to listen to who you are. And help me to trust that you love me and help me to have a true love for you. Father, as we leave from this place, I pray that you would be in and out and through everything we say and do, that we would call you to mind in our conversations, that in the celebrations we have, if we are gathering at a table with friends for a meal, we, I pray you would remind us of the table you're preparing for us and the well-spread food that you have for us. Thank you that you are satisfying where nothing else is. Father, we love you and we thank you. We pray this in the resurrected Lord's name. Amen.